You're listening to WRGC 88.3 FM, a broadcast service of Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university. Support for Georgia College Connections comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university, providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. Thank you for tuning in to Georgia College Connections. I am your host, Daniel McDonald. The Ukraine is at the center of the impeachment inquiry of U.S. President Donald Trump. But is its place in this domestic political imbroglio indicative of its importance in the current geopolitical dynamic? My guest, Georgia College Associate Professor of History, Bill Risch, has kept us abreast of happenings in Ukraine from the Euromaidan protests of 2014-2015 through to the separatist violence that continues to pit Ukraine against its eastern neighbor, Russia. He's joining me today to lend context to this major player in domestic and international affairs. Bill Risch, welcome back to Georgia College Connections. It's great to be here. Thanks. Well... As I mentioned in the introduction, Ukraine is coming across the lips of many news anchors and many news thinkers across the country in its relationship to the impeachment inquiry of U.S. President Donald Trump. But I'm curious, is it any coincidence that the Ukraine is at the center of this impeachment inquiry? It may seem like a surprise to so many because who has ever really heard of Ukraine up until this point? But the truth is, you have to go back over the last 25 or so years, and you'll see that sooner or later, perhaps connections like these would have come about. Since 1991, the United States has always regarded Ukraine as an important part of its foreign policy strategy after the end of the Soviet Union. Ukraine was an important bridge between East and West, or as one analyst once called it, the keystone in the arch which provides security for both Central and Eastern Europe on one side and Russia on the other. Thus, having a prosperous and secure Ukraine was important for, for all the neighborhood. And so the United States put in a lot of resources, financial personnel, towards trying to make Ukraine a viable liberal democratic state, a prosperous liberal democratic state, we could say. And so, uh, actually, Ukraine received quite a bit of foreign aid over the 1990s. If I'm not mistaken, in the late 1990s, it was amongst the top three. I think at one point in time, it was Israel, Egypt, and Ukraine. And during the last few political crises or revolutions, depending on your view of them, we've seen the United States playing a major role in trying to broker a solution to these crises. In the Orange Revolution of 2004, we see the United States and the European Union and Russia negotiating a political compromise that ended a political stalemate there. That was 2004. About a decade later, we have the Euromaidan Revolution of 2013-2014, or as some call it, the Ukraine crisis, which is still an ongoing crisis, and the United States playing a role there. 
Here we see, for instance, Senators John McCain and Chris Murphy going to the Euromaidan itself, the main protest camp in Kiev, Ukraine, back in December 2013, December the 15th, if I'm not mistaken. And there they spoke and said that they were in solidarity with the Ukrainian people. And the late Senator McCain even said that, as you fight for your freedom, we will be with you every step of the way. And so Euromaidan protests and that revolution became a very important crisis that the United States had to deal with. And under the presidency of Barack Obama, there were attempts to broker some kind of a solution. And we even had the Undersecretary of State for Eurasia, Victoria Nuland, and she came to Kiev on several occasions in 2014 to, well, it looked like at one point in early February 2014, she wanted to facilitate the establishment of some sort of coalition government between the opposition and the regime of then-President Viktor Yanukovych. And she was even working with the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine at the time, Jeffrey Pyatt. But it looked very unseemly, by the way, to have these U.S. officials actively supporting the Euromaidan protesters and even facilitating the uh, emergence of a new government that would replace the one in charge in Ukraine. So it's not a surprise that U.S. connections to Ukraine were there. And then when the regime of Viktor Yanukovych was overthrown. We had intervention by Russia, first in Crimea and then in the Donbass region and to some degree in other parts of southern and eastern Ukraine. We had the U.S. president send Vice President Joe Biden there to defuse the crisis as much as possible. He was actually there, I believe, during some of the worst of the protests or just thereafter when the Yanukovych regime was overthrown. He definitely lended support to Petro Poroshenko, who was elected president in May 2014. And Joe Biden bragged several times that he was on the phone with President Poroshenko more than his own wife and that he was placing pressure on Poroshenko to deal with these problems of corruption that had caused the Euromaidan protests, these problems of corruption, by the way, that had been there in the previous revolution, the Orange Revolution of 2004. And so we do see Joe Biden playing a major role in Ukrainian politics. And to some degree, we can go back to the Obama administration, Secretary of State John Kerry, who was also playing a role there in trying to defuse the crisis and provide a political solution And so we do see John Kerry, to some degree, voicing solidarity with the Euromaidan protesters at one point. So you have these connections that are there. And then at the same time, you do see these rather insidious connections, maybe, between Ukrainian businesses and American politicians or their relatives. In the case of Joe Biden, his son, Hunter Biden, who was appointed to the board of this gas trading company, I believe it is, Burisma. And Burisma was known for stealing millions of dollars and sending it outside Ukraine. And at one point, there was a criminal case opened against it. Biden's son was a part of that. And thus, we get to this crisis, this crisis in the United States. Again, where are the U.S. connections? They are with the defense of Ukraine. And 
really both political parties, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, they both have supported sending aid to Ukraine, including military aid. And that includes weaponry. And at least for a long time under the Obama administration, the Obama administration was afraid of, of sending weapons to Ukraine. They were afraid of escalating the conflict in the Donbass region and bringing more weapons from Russia into it and thus producing an arms race between Russian-backed separatists and Ukrainian military that could have really escalated the war and could have caused a regional war, if not a continental one. There is that possibility. And to some degree, perhaps the Obama administration was correct in not sending any weapons. Under the presidency of Donald J. Trump, what we see is finally some aid was sent in the form of weapons, these javelin missiles that are supposed to take down tanks. The, the problem is that it's really not that relevant to Ukraine right now because there are no major tank battles going on. There is no need to shoot Russian tanks. And actually, those javelins are being kept in western Ukraine where there is no Russian military threat. Uh, the ambassador to Ukraine, the former ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, noted the symbolic value of these javelin rockets that can attack uh, Russian tanks. But even then, it's really just symbolic. Uh, more important is really what they provide in terms of uh, the equipment needed to help soldiers, such as night vision, uh, aid with night vision, and, and, and with clothing, and with protection, body armor, and those kinds of things. There are a number of different means by which the United States helps the Ukrainian military, which is not necessarily about weaponry. Well, so you've set up a situation in which we have uh, these two Cold War adversaries exerting pressure on both sides of this country. For Russia, what does Ukraine and its influence over Ukraine mean for their ambitions or their current state? Well, I think Russia under Vladimir Putin has asserted its position in the world as a major power again. And Russia being a major power does see Ukraine as part of its sphere of influence. It's near abroad, maybe they would say. In the old days, they would say that for sure, in the Soviet times. Some could make historical claims and say that Ukraine has always been a part of the Russian world, the Russian world consisting of three brother nations, the Belarusian nation, the Ukrainian nation, and the Russian nation. Historically, they've always been together. Therefore, Ukraine is naturally part of the Russian sphere of influence. And so you do have these strong connections to Russia, which, I mean, even the president of Ukraine now, Volodymyr Zelensky, he ran a very successful uh, media company, uh, which was based on this comedy show that he had, uh, the 95th Quartal, you'd say in, in Russian, this very popular comedy act that played in Russia, in all the republics of the former Soviet Union. He had very strong ties, business ties to Russia too. And those business ties are still there, really. If you look at Ukrainian economy, Russia is still the main economic partner of, of Ukraine. When we look at goods that are imported, exported, 
we really see Russia playing a, a considerable role in, in Ukraine's economy, even to the present. The European Union, its role is increasing, but still Russia is the number one trading partner with Ukraine to the present. Which always leads to this very paradoxical situation where you have business relations between Russians and Ukrainians while at the same time war is taking place. Somehow, I think that gets rationalized because the war is seen often as a civil war between different regions of Ukraine, which is a somewhat misleading term if you think about the outside role that is played by Russian military, Russian military intelligence. Without Russian military and Russian military intelligence, the separatist republics that exist there, the People's Republic of Donetsk and the People's Republic of Luhansk, they wouldn't exist well, that is a good jumping off point uh, for us to take a short break. If you're just joining us, just listening to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. My guest today, Georgia College Associate Professor of History Bill Risch, is here to talk about Ukraine's place in the current geopolitical dynamic and also our impeachment inquiry into U.S. President Donald Trump. We'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Today we are focusing on one country in the midst of this country's impeachment inquiry, and that is the country of Ukraine. I've invited back Georgia College Associate Professor of History Bill Risch, who has met with us various times to talk about Ukraine and its role in the geopolitics of our time. In that last segment, we were talking about the violence that takes place in eastern Ukraine uh, with various separatist groups uh, with the backing of Russia trying to break away from the Ukraine. Uh, that was the topic of several of the conversations that we've had in the past years. And I thought um, I would ask you if you could kind of talk more about what is going on in eastern Ukraine and how that has unrolled in the past years. The conflict in eastern Ukraine, more precisely the Donbass region, the, the furthest eastern region of Ukraine, the conflict in the Donbass, it continues, it festers. It hasn't been of the alarming proportions that I would have told you about five years ago. There were two rounds of peace negotiations in the capital of Belarus, Minsk, those happened in early September 2014, and then in mid 
February 2015. From the fall of 2015 on, you don't really see heavy combat anymore. What's happened more or less is that there is constant shooting, many deaths over time. Mostly, again, this is snipers shooting snipers. Sometimes, though, you'll see this sudden upswing in artillery shelling that will take place, and there will be a number of casualties, and then the fighting will die down again. But on a regular basis, there is shooting on the front lines. And so to that extent, you can't say that the war is over by any means or that there is no war. There is one. It's just that the media got sick and tired of following it. When earlier you talked about there being a crisis in our conception of what this is, um, it being a civil a war uh, between those who would like to separate from Ukraine. Many times I have described it as a, a war with a Russian-backed separatists. Uh, how do the people in Ukraine, those people who are living with this reality day to day, how do they view this? It's very complicated because if you look at the country's intellectual elite, the mainstream Ukrainian media, In most cases, they will frown on that term, civil war. Amongst the Ukrainian diaspora, those who are living outside Ukraine, civil war is a very offensive term. And if you look at the perspective of some that are closer to the frontline violence, you often get the impression that it is a civil war to some degree because They know of the people that are on the other side, relatives or neighbors who are fighting the Ukrainian side. So it is a civil war in that respect. And there are some regions in Ukraine where the population will tell you that really they don't know who started this war or that it is a civil war. They will not blame Russia. In fact, they blame Ukraine for starting this conflict. And some will tell you that it is a civil war. So this is why it becomes so tricky, as you have mentioned, Daniel, is that if you use the the term civil war, it's disingenuous. But then if you talk about it purely being Russian aggression, that doesn't work either because you have so many people supporting the separatist governments for whatever reason. Could you talk about the rift that would add to the complexity? In that sense, I think about the Euromaidan protests, a simplified version, one that would be simple for myself to come to, would be a a decision to move closer towards the European Union or closer towards Russia. And that kind of creating, is it possible to say an ideological, a dividing line for the people who are in this country that really sits as a fulcrum between these two centers of power within that part of the world? That ideological dividing line really is there. Pro-Russian, pro-Western, pro-European, pro-Russian. The thing is, it's just been made worse by this conflict in the East. Some see that 
there is no other solution but for Ukraine to join NATO as well as the European Union because of Russian military aggression. On the other hand, you do have people who stress Ukraine's historical ties to Russia, their own personal family, business ties to Russia. These people that feel close to Russia may be speakers of the Russian language, but actually there are Russian speakers who are pro-European and pro-Euromaidan and pro-NATO and, and pro-European Union, so it's, it's misleading to, to base this on language. But if you do look at some of these regions that are closer to Russia, especially the Donbass region, but also the south, there are those, those connections to, to Russia that are still strong. It has changed over time. The South, for instance, it's more towards Odessa where you will see people who are orienting themselves more towards Russia. And then the other parts of the South, really not. And then uh, the Donbass region and the Kharkiv region, they would identify themselves as closer to Russia. So the thing is that that ideological divide is there. It's been made worse by the war. And... Unfortunately, I think that the military actions in the Donbass region perhaps have polarized society between those who live in Russian militant occupied Donbass and the Ukrainian part of Donbass that's under Ukrainian control. These things are very difficult for Ukraine as a whole. These splits between those who are more towards Russia, those who are more towards Europe, those who want a peaceful solution to the war in the Donbass, those who would like to have Donbass receive perhaps special status, although uh, that's also part of the recent developments, is uh, these attempts at bringing about an end to the war and the possible reintegration of Russian-held Donbass into Ukraine and how that would work. What we do see is these republics have more or less become states because five years ago, it just seemed like there were different gangs running different neighborhoods of different cities even, and there was really no order at all. There is some degree of order. There are state structures today in the People's Republic of Donetsk and the People's Republic of Luhansk but they do sustain themselves primarily through Russian aid. And so you don't really have armed mobs running around at will. That's sort of gone. It's kind of interesting to note that really on both sides of the conflict, we see some sort of regular military now in charge. You did have volunteer battalions fighting for the Luhansk People's Republic, Donetsk People's Republic on one side. You had volunteer battalions battalions fighting for Ukraine on the other side. Those battalions are all more or less gone, and you have something like a military for these two separatist republics, and you have a Ukrainian military that has assumed control over all operations in the East. When you say you have these militaries in these two separatist republics, are they autonomous actors? On the ground, I mean, is there a government structure in place there, that would go from the local unit to, shall we say, like a state government or one that would interact with other state actors outside of their autonomous region? There is a government structure now in both states. The problem is that the leadership is changed, and quite often the leadership is changed through actions that happen from Russia itself. 
There have been a number of very strange assassinations lately, for instance. The former leader of the Donetsk People's Republic, Alexander Zaharchenko, was mysteriously blown up in this cafe that they called the Separatist Cafe, where all the armed separatists used to hang out and drink. Who did it? It's still not clear. Was it different clans in Donbass that were fighting for power? And there are these different groups that are fighting for power in these different republics. Or was it Russia trying to get rid of this guy so they could eventually do something different with the Donetsk People's Republic? You're listening to a conversation with Georgia College history professor Bill Risch about Ukraine, its role in the United States impeachment inquiry, and its place at the intersection of Eastern and Western concepts of modern geopolitics. Bill Risch is the author of The Ukrainian West, Culture in the Fate of Empire in Soviet Lviv. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Georgia College history professor Bill Risch about Ukraine on the occasion of its central role in the impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump. But we're not talking about impeachment. We're talking about the importance of Ukraine in the geopolitical balance between East and West. Now, the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, one part, as reported in the West, of his successful platform for becoming president was an end to the conflict in the East. Uh-huh. And, of course, as president, he has been working towards that aim. What has come from the current Ukrainian government as a attempts at resolving the conflict and coming to a solution for the question of separatist uh, movement within these regions in the East? Well, first, I would like to say that it's Volodymyr Zelensky, just like the capital of Ukraine is Kiev, and I use Ukrainian pronunciations for all names. I do not use Russian pronunciations when I talk about events in Ukraine. Uh, This is one thing that the media does everywhere, present company I will exclude because, you know, this is a, an important moment for us to understand what's going on in Ukraine. The thing is that um, when it comes to Zelensky, he did promise peace, and that brought a lot of support for him because there were many people, especially in Ukraine's south and east, that believed that Poroshenko had started this war and that really he should be thrown out of office. Because of it, there were such sentiments. For some of these people, there's great hope that uh, Zelensky would be able to end the war. And he's trying to 
For instance, he did negotiate with Russia, and there was a prisoner exchange, and in that prisoner exchange, something on the order of at least 30 Ukrainian prisoners in Russia were freed. This includes 24 sailors that were taken by Russia in the Sea of Azov about a year ago. But there are many more, these political prisoners. Some of them had been in there since in prison since 2014. So that was a success. The thing is that the next step that Zelensky has taken has been to try to move the armed forces of both sides away from each other so there isn't this shooting going on all the time. And so they've moved Ukrainian military forces from this so-called gray zone where they had sort of entered over the last few years. And this has left villages and small towns in what we could call no man's land, and that has terrified some because they're afraid that pro-Russian activists, separatists, who feared the Ukrainian authorities when they were there, the Ukrainian authorities are gone, so now they can get even with their pro-Ukraine opponents. And that's a real fear. So far, it doesn't look like fighting has escalated, but it doesn't look like the fighting has stopped either. And that is a problem. So this peace initiative may not go very far. And then there's also the problem of, well, what sort of peace plan can be offered that Russia and Ukraine will take and that the separatists will take? And the problem is the current president of Germany, Steinmeier, I think it was 2015, had proposed this peace plan, which has been known as the Steinmeier formula. This idea that there would be elections in the Donbass region, there would be members of parliament elected there, there would be local legislatures, they would hold elections there, and different parties could run pro-Ukrainian parties as well as pro-Russian parties, that there would be an amnesty for some crimes committed by separatists. It's not clear if all of them would be, but some are afraid that all kinds of armed militants would get off free for what they did during the war in the Donbass. And there were militants in Russian-held Donbass who tortured and murdered many people pro-Ukrainian and others. And the thing is, though, that uh, some people are afraid of this. They're also afraid of this idea that the, the region would have a special status within Ukraine, so there'd be some degree of autonomy for this region. What would that mean for the rest of Ukraine? Would the other regions of Ukraine also get autonomy? Most importantly, would Ukraine suddenly have all these pro-Russian militants as part of their their state, their political system, and the supporters of these people would be part of the political system as well. The other thing, though, is that there are others that see this as just not practical because the Steinmeier formula cannot be implemented until Ukraine gets access to the border, regains control over the border. Russian military support has to be withdrawn. All major military organizations have to disarm There has to be free access for Ukrainian media and Ukrainian political organizations to 
hold their campaigns, their electoral campaigns, all these things on the ground that just are not workable. But the leaders of Ukraine, Zelensky, believes that they at least have to do something because a military solution is just not on the table. To put it very bluntly, and I know this may cause some controversy, at least one of my friends, a historian, believes this, and I'll just agree with him here, is that Russia won the war. Russia won the war. It gained control of the Sea of Azov. It gained Crimea. Ukrainian politics are more dysfunctional than ever because of this war in the Donbass region. Really, they got what they wanted. And what we have seen, really, is that the political party that has come to power in the Ukrainian parliament over this summer, the party organized by Volodymyr Zelensky, and it's called the Servant of the People Party, named after actually his TV series, which is called Servant of the People. They've won an absolute majority in the parliament. It's a record for Ukrainian politics. For the first time, there's one party that holds a majority there and doesn't have to govern as part of some coalition. And then Zelensky himself was elected by about 72% of the population. These forces are more or less for a peaceful solution to Ukraine's problems, including this war with Russia. So there really isn't the will to fight, unfortunately. And I do have friends who have said and who have volunteered and who have said, okay, all you guys who vote for Zelensky, you fight next time. So I, I think that um, the problem is really that Russia has won and that things are being done on Russia's terms, including the peace plan that may or may not be implemented. There's nothing really that is going to change this. A military solution, there, isn't, there does not seem to be the will to fight. In Ukraine, there is a very strong minority in Ukraine, but unfortunately, or fortunately, whatever perspective you have, that minority is willing to go all the way to fight for Ukraine, but unfortunately, the majority does not want that kind of a war. And if you look realistically, the military superiority of Russia remains overwhelming. And the truth is that they could annihilate the Ukrainian military in Donbass if they wanted to. You're listening to a conversation with Georgia College history professor Bill Risch about Ukraine and what we're missing in thinking about this country only in the context of the impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump. Bill Rich focuses on modern Europe and Russia and the Soviet Union in the Georgia College History Department. He is the author of The Ukrainian West, Culture and the Fate of the Empire in Soviet Lviv.
Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Georgia College History Department scholar on modern Europe in Russia and the Soviet Union, Professor Bill Rich. He's joining me to talk about the Ukraine and its role in modern geopolitics beyond the impeachment inquiry into U.S. President Donald Trump. To bring this country back into the mix, I mean, what has been the consequence of wishy-washy support from the United States uh, to Ukraine. I like the way you put it as uh, wishy-washy support because the truth is Ukrainians matter to the United States probably. Ukraine matters to the United States as a strategic partner to contain the power of Russia. But the United States doesn't want to go to war with Russia. So we support Ukraine, we support its democratic ambitions, the democratic aspirations of its people, but in any major military crisis, the United States will not take that step of acting and defending Ukraine against Russia. They will not. They just won't. I once raised this hypothetical question to a Cold War historian at another university here in the South. I asked her, what if Russian forces went to Kiev? And she said, the United States wouldn't do anything. This was in 2015. <laughs> she said, unless you had a total idiot like Ted Cruz elected president, this wouldn't happen. Well, I don't know about her opinion about Ted Cruz, but this idea that no, no politician in the United States, Democrat or Republican, would support U.S. military operations against Russia, that I think is just something that we have to accept. Could you put out a little context of what you're proposing here in that challenge to this Cold War uh, historian? You know, what would be the either a true or symbolic weight of Russians going to Kiev? Well, if the Russians could take Kiev, then why not go after the Baltic states? And there was actually a, a hypothetical scenario that became an entire BBC documentary. What if Russia decided to take over part of Latvia in defiance of NATO? And the answer was nothing would happen. And there have been politicians, actually, who have lately said quite openly, including the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, who said that NATO is brain dead. So the reality is that would just be the beginning, perhaps. Russia could do whatever it wants to because NATO doesn't really deter Russia. At this point, it's hard to say. I mean, I think that NATO has deterred Russia from military intervention in the Baltic states. Then again, it could also be that Russia finds that its interests in the Baltic states are seriously threatened. And you do have Russian capital and Russian business there freely moving about. Russians gaining EU citizenship through some of these, these states if they invest money there. When we think about the solidification of the idea that Russia could act with impunity, how far along that arc was the annexation of Crimea? Oh, uh, that was impunity use? because it was clear that no one was going to be able to do anything because there was no Ukrainian state left. What's really, really odd is that 
as Ukrainian politicians tried to discredit each other over the last few years, somebody leaked a document from their National Security and Defense Council where there are members of the government openly saying, Ukraine does not have an army anymore. The Ukrainian state does not exist. We have to restore order in our state before we can even try to do something in Crimea. We cannot do anything except to use nonviolent resistance at our military bases. We can appeal to the world for their help and their support, but that's all that we can do. So they basically gave up Crimea on February the 28th, 2014, at that evening meeting. So Russia acted with impunity. They started their military operation, you could say, on February the 27th, when armed men seized control of Crimea's parliament because Crimea was an autonomous region at that point in time. And then they were moving in Russian military on a large scale, March the 1st, really. And there was actually a resolution by the Federal Council of Russia authorizing the use of such force. And the West couldn't really do much. There was the so-called Budapest Memorandum of 1994, I believe it was signed at the end of 1994, where... All these powers guaranteed Ukraine's sovereignty and uh, territorial integrity in exchange for Ukraine giving up its Soviet arsenal of nuclear weapons. That Budapest memorandum was about guarantees, that they would guarantee sovereignty and territorial integrity. But how are they to do that? The only thing that the Budapest Memorandum really says is for the different parties who sign that memorandum to meet and deal with the issue. They met, they dealt with the issue, and that was all. So the truth is that Russia could do whatever it wanted there. And when it came to the Donbass, there was only so much that the U.S. or any other outside power could do there as well. The problem is that uh, this maybe goes on to another subject, though, but instead you see the Donbass becoming sort of this region where all sorts of military adventurers came and fought for either Ukraine or for the separatists. And that included United States citizens, by the way. And why they were there? Some would say ideological reasons. There was some left-wing conspiracy theorist who went by the codename Tex, and he was over, I believe, in the Donetsk People's Republic. He might still be there fighting for them, and he was interviewed by Vice News at one point. But there have been some scary examples. Um, there was a friend of a friend who joined one of these battalions. He was from the United States. Apparently, he had joined to get out of alimony payments to his wife. There was this divorce involving his wife, and he was getting away from that. And he went to Ukraine, became one of these militants. He eventually left military service, but hung out in Ukraine. And then he sort of got interested in another military adventure in Venezuela. And to my shock, over the past year, I found out that he was involved in the murder of a couple in Florida. And that murder 
was all about getting their money so that he, this guy, and his friend could go over to Venezuela and fight for freedom for the Venezuelans. You have very strange stories like these, but there are so many of them. Foreigners just coming over to Ukraine and fighting on one side or the other. Foreigners going to Ukraine and never coming back, disappearing, being killed by people who didn't believe that they were on their side, that they were being loyal. All those things happening. It's on a smaller scale, perhaps, but it's very reminiscent of what happened with the Islamic State, ISIS, where you have these different foreigners coming over to fight. To some degree, that has been fueling the Donbass war. And in fact, if you look at the Russian side, the pro-Russian side, many, many people, uh, Russian military on leave, uh, Russian war veterans, going over to Donbass to defend the Russian world. That was very, that was a very commonplace occurrence in the spring and summer of 2014 and even in 2015. You're listening to a conversation with Georgia College history professor Bill Risch about Ukraine, its role in the United States impeachment inquiry, and its place at the intersection of Eastern and Western concepts of modern geopolitics. Bill Risch is the author of The Ukrainian West, Culture in the Fate of Empire in Soviet Lviv. staying tuned to Georgia College Connections. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Georgia College history professor Bill Risch about Ukraine on the occasion of its central role in the impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump. But we're not talking about impeachment. We're talking about the importance of Ukraine and the geopolitical balance between East and West. And as a U.S. college professor who went to Ukraine to observe and to understand what they could what are the questions that those audience members who have stuck with us throughout this conversation uh, should be asking, the things that they should be thinking about as we watch this un- continue to unfold and wonder about what it means about our future in this country, but also our future in the current world condition? I think that the one thing that people should ask themselves is – Has the Cold War really been the noble cause that we talk about? When we talk about the end of the Soviet Union, was it really the triumph of liberal democracy and free markets throughout the world? To some extent, I believe that we've become very complacent and very smug and very ignorant of 
recent history as well as general history. When it comes to places like the Soviet Union, Russia, Ukraine, we have no idea how many problems are coming out of the dissolution of the Soviet Union and that those problems are only going to get worse, not better. And when we talk about the triumph of capitalism, the triumph of the capitalist West, you could call it, it has led to global ties across continents, business, communication, transportation ties. All of these things have, have flourished. We've become part of a more global world. But it's also produced very strange combinations. People like Rudy Giuliani, who are venturing into the world of Ukrainian business and trying to deal with Ukraine and U.S. political problems and failing at it and causing a scandal. You have the son of a vice president who becomes a member of the board of a very corrupt company being paid millions, tens of millions of dollars to do nothing except to be there. And then you have this guy, Craig Lang is the name. You can look him up on uh, Radio Liberty Reports, but uh, he went over there for an adventure for whatever reason. And uh, that adventure didn't stop there. It went over to Florida and killed two people. And you think about those kinds of different connections. And, for instance, how things like the social media may connect different parts of the world, may create centers of support, but also support for different causes, like fighting for a separate republic in the Donbass region or supporting political causes that may seem to be patriotic and pro-Ukrainian, but also lend support to elements that we would find very distasteful, elements that we would identify with neo-Nazism and racism and xenophobia and all those things that really have no connection to the Euromaidan, which has become some kind of a sustaining myth in Ukrainian politics, as it was all about peace and love and fighting corruption and the use of nonviolence. But the truth is that it was a very complicated movement that enabled all sorts of people, all sorts of political personalities, including very disturbing ones, to eventually play some role in Ukrainian history and unfortunately also play a role in U.S. history. When we've spoken in the past, you talked about the danger of a lack of interest uh, within our country and other countries to what was ongoing in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what you have realized in the years since even we have spoken about Ukraine here on WRGC? Well, it seems like there are a lot of lessons to be learned or maybe that I've learned. One thing is, we idealize the West, we ide idealize Europe, we idealize European values. And at that point in time, six years ago, it seemed like Ukraine moving closer to Europe meant that a better age was coming for all of Europe. If we look at recent events, really, the European Union itself is under serious challenges from these 
former communist countries that allegedly were becoming more democratic, uh, embracing the values of individual rights. Countries like Poland and Hungary that have now become really authoritarian, that have gone against those ideals. You've got a protest movement and a revolution in Ukraine that seemed to assert these values, but that they were quickly undermined by all the violence that happened as the regime there fell in 2014 and Russian intervention came in. Uh, so we really idealize the West. And unfortunately, it just shows that how much we all, including myself, have had a certain hubris about the West and and American values and European values and thinking that the world is all going to become like us. And yet, if you really look at recent events as well, here in the United States, what do you see? You actually see some of the ugliest parts of those parts of the world we were trying to help being reflected in us here in the United States. In how we discuss politics, in how we deal with political scandals, in how we obscure and manipulate facts. And I think that it's very, very tragic that quite often we engage in a sort of theatrics about politics without dealing with the serious crises that affect us. That includes things like the distribution of wealth in this country, the problems of racism in this country, the problems of climate change and what that will do to us in the next decade or two. And I have to stress will because I don't see enough changes happening in the short term to alleviate those problems. So what we what we see is, is really, besides this hubris about the West and what it stands for, this unwillingness to engage in the facts and to engage in constructive political dialogue and to deal with the serious problems that affect people on a daily basis. Those are two lessons that I have learned. Also, probably, uh, a, this may be connected with the first point, it's this idealizing of Europe. Perhaps people that specialize in Eastern Europe and Russia thought that what was going on was finally that Russians and Ukrainians and all these people in the East were finally becoming more like us. But that was not going to happen. And perhaps it was wrong to assume that that should happen. In building off of that last response, as we go into a period of reflection on the direction we would like to take our government in the future, what can we take out of this arc in the East in how we consider our own self-determination and what we would like to be in uh, the world stage in the near future? Well, I think one thing that we should do is it may be time to get rid of some of these conceptions about us being leaders in this and leaders in that, that perhaps the United States is not the savior of the world. That's one thing. Second, I would say that uh, when it comes to the struggles within our own country, beware of the echo chamber. Beware of this idea that somehow 
you are morally superior than others and that your cause is with history and the right cause, it can lead you to become blinded. I will never forget standing on a square in Kharkiv in mid-January 2014, and there was one of these speakers who was addressing the Euromaidan crowd, and he talked about, it was actually uh, this Soviet-era novel about this battle with a dragon, and he warned people that if you make yourself into too much of a hero and make your cause into something that's so sacred and inviolable, and if you're not willing to admit your own mistakes, you'll just become as bad as the dragon that you are trying to slay. That was his main message. And I still think about that to this day. That's the one thing from Ukrainian politics we do need to understand. If we get anything from what goes on in Ukraine, I would not argue, as some scholars have said, that Ukraine is an example of the battle for the truth and that somehow Ukrainians have won that battle. Unfortunately, there's a heap of literature that assumes this. I would say that the conceptual blindness and the inability to listen to people and the turning oneself into a hero or a victim of history can lead to people becoming just as intolerant and just as divisive as the people they are trying to resist. Well, Bill Rich, I want to thank you for coming and bringing this thoughtful conversation and analysis to us here at Georgia College Connections. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Today we talked with Georgia College history professor Bill Risch about Ukraine, its place in the impeachment inquiry, and its place in the geopolitical history of the now. Bill Risch has come in and talked with us since 2014 about Ukraine in connection with the Euromaidan protests of 2014-2015 in the Russian-backed separatist uprising in eastern Ukraine. Today, he came in to talk about Ukraine's place in the U.S. impeachment inquiry and what we are missing when we think about it just in that context. On behalf of WRGC, I've been your host, Daniel McDonald. It's been my pleasure spending this portion of the evening with you here on Georgia College Connections, and I want you to know that I look forward to convening with you next time.